The following show is pre-recorded. Good afternoon. It's about 4 p.m. right now at WERU FM Blue Hill. Could be any time at WERU.org. And it's time for Boat Talk on this community-supported, non-commercial Kelp Roots Radio with your hosts Mike Joyce, John Johansson, and Alan Sprague. WERU is in mid-course of our first fundraiser of the year, and we ask for a little support from you to keep us afloat. Just call 207-469-6600, or keep listening and click on Donate Now at WERU.org, and thank you. We begin with rusty anchor John Johansson and the latest boatyard report. Uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, Portland Yacht Services had been working on a 55-foot grebe that uh, needed a new bottom. The owner had decided that he wanted to upgrade from 400 horsepower into twin 200 horsepower GM diesels, and they put in twin 600 horsepower Cummins. So that pushed it up to 1,200 horsepower. The problem was the bottom would never have taken that kind of beating. So uh, Brent Sullivan, who's the general manager at PYS, knew of Richard Stanley because he had worked at the Hinkley Company. So he called Richard to come on down and take a look at the bottom. Well, he also brought Richard down to work on the boat. Richard's there about four days a week at least. Uh, working on projects that they've got. And this is the big one that they just finished. Uh, they put a complete bottom on her, stem to stern. They had to upgrade all of the framing. The frames were supposed to be over three inches in uh, thickness, and they weren't. They were just over an inch thick. So what Richard did is he put in sister frames because yeah. some of them were broken, but he fixed everything. He also upgraded the bottom. It was double planked but he added thickness to the double planking. So the bottom is absolutely perfect. And they put it in the water and I was able to get pictures and anybody who's looking to see those pictures, they'll be on my Facebook page. If you just go to John Johansson and she's throwing a lot of water, uh, but that's because she never reached these speeds before. So the owner said that he cruised at 12, wanted to go another seven. So when they took him out on the sea trials, they said, well, here's 12. Then they go, here's your 19, and here's the rest of it. And it, <laughs> went, up to 20, it went up to 26 uh, knots. And they wow. think the, pro the props need to be repitched. So they think they can get another two knots. Uh. So, you know, and this is a you know, pretty good-sized powerboat, 55-footer. But anyway, she's now getting her interior put back in because they didn't want to put the interior in until they knew everything worked well. 
And the other reason to launch her was to make sure that they knew where they were going to put the spray rails because she had spray rails before, but they weren't put on this time before they went in the water. Then I stopped at Fogg's Boatworks, which is in North Yarmouth, and they have a 39-foot aluminum cat under construction. And they own a taxi service in Portland around Casco Bay. So this is going to go into their service. And it's one that Patrick Fogg had designed. He's a graduate of the boat school in the one of the last classes that went through the boat school. And he's working with his father, Dennis, down there in North Yarmouth. And, and they do a really nice job putting these boats together. They're totally busy all summer long. And basically, the boat shops closed in the summer because they're out running the taxi service. And they probably make a lot more money in the taxi service than they'll make in the boat shop. But, they, you know, they're doing a good job there. At Rich's Boat Yard, have you been over there recently? They're working on Jericho. They're doing some cosmetic work and I think a little interior work, but not much. But Colin Rich's boat's inside because in the fall, it almost sank. And the problem there was that uh, 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 I think he he had a problem with a leak. And I'm not sure where it came from, whether it was from the rudder, uh, post or not but the water was going everywhere it got in the engine it got in the transmission it got into electrical stuff and so basically it got hauled into rich's uh boatyard and they've redone everything so basically the boat's going to go out as a brand new boat and one thing they did is they turned over and they took the buff off because she was originally had the buff uh decks and they've now turned them to Newport Green, thinking that will change Colin's luck. And so then I went further down east, and I was in Willis Beale's boat shop. As some know, he's building, he builds a model of winter. This winter, he's building a 63-inch model of a lobster boat, just like you would build a real wooden lobster boat. And he started to plank her up. So probably by now, she's pretty close to being all done, planked. And he'll flip it over and start putting the interior structure into it. Again, if you want to see photographs of it, I've got photographs on Facebook. And Alonzo Alley is also somebody to follow if you want to see that boat under construction. At Wayne Beal's Boat Shop, they took a 36 Wayne Beal and put hard shines on it. And that boat is almost done. And they've got another couple of 36s they need to do. Those will be without shines. But then they're going to actually make a mold of the 36 with chimes. And one of them we may see on the lobster boat racing circuit. I went to Patrick Feeney's boat shop. He had a 42 West Mac in there, the Whitney and Ashley, I believe is her name. And she was just in for annual maintenance. But uh, they had two 35 Mitchell Coves hulls because they have the hulls, moles for those boats. And they're laying up two of them to do lobster boats for local customers. But the big project in Cutler was at uh, Little River Boat Shop, which is run by the Lemuse, which is Norbert and, and Nick. Nick does a lot of it now. His father's kind of retired, but he's always there anyways. Uh, they got a 50-foot Westmac, And a lot of people saw that on Facebook because it took up the whole road as it headed down to uh, Cutler. And... The boat was widened three feet. And the way they did that is they laid her up to the chine. And then they turned around and spread the mold 
and laid up from the chine up. Then they also added a five foot extension over the water line because, you know, if you stay under 50 feet or if you go over 50 feet, the rules change. But anyways, they've started to put in the interior structures under the deck, under the platform, and they've got some of the uh, forward section and the engines in place and getting ready to be hooked up. So she's scheduled to be out by the end of uh, uh, spring. So that's a huge, huge project. And they do everything themselves. They lay up the cabin. They don't get a top. They actually do their own tops. It's not stick built. They lay up panels and do their tops. So that's some of the stuff that I was able to get into and see this, this run. Thank you, John. Next, we talked with an energetic woman in Belfast who started a business centered around her Swampscott Dory called Dory Woman Rowing. Here's Nicole Luttrell. I was intrigued by the rowing mittens. John, have you ever seen specially designed rowing mittens? No. (laughs) (laughs) I hadn't either until uh, Nicole was wearing a pair of them. They're... um, I'm not sure what you're referring to. I don't. I don't have any special mittens. I just have well, rowing gloves. These are. Um, I guess you'd call them over mittens. Um, and rather than just being a, a, a mitten, there's a little short sleeve on the outboard side of each one that the yeah. oar goes into. So you're holding onto the oar inside of this outer glove. Yeah, we call those pogies. Call them what? Hoagies, kind of like fish. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We call them hoagies. I don't wear them a lot. I wore them the other day. I went for a long row and I'd gone for a row right before that. And my, my regular gloves were all wet. So um, a friend lent me her pogies and I use those. And, and those are nice because those keep your hands really warm. Yeah. How were they developed? Do you know any history about them? I don't. No, I don't wear them very often. Yep. Um, I mostly wear gloves, you know, mm-hmm. like um, gill um, sailing gloves. I wear those a lot or, you know, Rennie special. We've posted pictures of pogies and more from Nicole at the boattalk.org website. According to the internet, pogies were invented over 50 years ago by a slalom kayaker named Billy Nutt. We asked about the Dory's construction. It's actually an Ian Outred design, uh, and and it was built by a group of middle school students in Westbrook, Maine. So back in 2005, and it had become a property of the Compass Project in Biddeford. So another youth boat building program. And so they, they owned it and they sold it to me. They were offloading some boats and, and that was one of them. Yeah. So I I brought her home on mother's day and we took our maiden voyage, you know, late that afternoon on a blustery May day. And, um, you know, I, it was quite a, quite a change from rowing the pilot gigs, rowing, uh, you know, this in a sweep, a sweep oar boat, uh, to going to two oars. And so that was quite a transition. And thankfully I had my friend Wes 
you know, who really gave me some guidance. And uh, I remember feeling like on one hand, it was amazing to be out in the harbor in Belfast in my own boat. On the other hand, it was like, this feels nothing like what I'm used to. And what have I done? I ended up rowing the heck out of that boat for a year and a half and learning her and rowing mainly by myself from, you know, May until the fall. And mostly who I had rowed with was my son. And we had one great adventure in, in the summer before I started rowing with other people. We rowed to Warren Island from Belfast. So that's about 11 miles as the crow flies. And uh, it was probably a mile or so more because we hugged the shoreline uh, once we made it over a couple of the channels to Islesboro. But, uh, you know, I've, that was such an adventure that I've written an essay about it, which I intend to submit to New York Times Parenting because my son at the time was 15 years old. And, you know, I'd say that the challenge of, of working with him um, was more than the physical challenge of rowing into a fierce, uh, you know, southwesterly headwind, you know, and chop. So, uh, yeah, he wanted to be anywhere but in that boat with me. So, um. <laughs> before you started, how did he feel about that adventure? I don't think he took me seriously, Alan. Huh. I had been, I had been kind of prepping him for a couple of weeks and. You know, I booked the campsite at Warren Island and was checking the weather and getting gear ready and all of that. And I don't think he thought we were actually going to do it. Huh. And so on the day that we did it, he was, you know, he was, I mean, he was, he just did not want to do it. And he just sort of went along and I had him in the stern seat, which is the stroke seat and, you know, the seat that he liked to be in. And I was in the bow seat and, um, you know, we embarked and right, right out of the right, right off the docks, he was not happy. And so, <laughs> you know, so he said, I'm uncomfortable. This is not working. It doesn't feel good. So I said, well, let's switch seats. So we, we switched seats and he said, well, that's a little better. But, um, you know, by the time we got to, we were almost to Bayside at that point. And I just said, let's just get to Bayside you know, and, and, and see how, see how it feels knowing that Bayside was like halfway basically. So we got to Bayside. We just kind of took a break, had some snacks. We saw some porpoises and that seemed like a good omen. And uh, we figured we wouldn't get um, attacked by sharks, you know, if we saw the porpoises. So, um, so anyway, um, there was a point of no return, uh, you know, and that's where we, we crossed over at Saturday Cove. Um, we, we ended up taking um, a break on um, Flat Island, which I don't know if either of you know, um, definitely lives up to its name, first of all. And secondly, um, there are etchings in the granite there uh, from mariners from the past. And I never would have known um, except another family was there and a man told me about it. And he said, there are etchings from the 1800s in these rocks and we didn't find any from the 1800s, but we found, we found ones from like the early 1900s, like 1903, 1908. That was, you know, that was quite a find. So that kind of buoyed us a little bit, you know, lightened things up. Um, and that was good because we needed it crossing the channel from Flat Island 
to Islesboro was some of the roughest water I've been in. You know, tide was going out, wind was coming in, there's a sandbar there. And uh, it was pretty, uh, you know, it was pretty high adventure for a little while. My son was like, mom, is this safe? <laughs> and I was like, honey, if it's not safe, we're going to go right, you know, we're going to go right to shore. So, you know, that's where we probably added on another mile or so because we hugged the shoreline. So, so you, you were a good example, I hope, and we're both wearing life jackets and all that Coast Guard we, stuff. He had his life jacket on. And, and of course, I had my life jacket. I had my life jacket. Yes. Did I have my life jacket on? I think I did. So um, I certainly had it in the boat. But anyway, um, you know, all that experience of rowing by myself and having a few adventures like that, a few long distance rows like that. I, I rode to Searsport too from Belfast. You know, I wish I could, I wish this could be my business. And so what if I started a rowing service? And I found out that um, there were a few things I needed to do in order to do that. And indeed, I needed to become a guide. And when I was told you have to become a sea kayak guide, I was like, what? You know, I'm a rower. I'm not a kayaker. I'm not a paddler. So why, why do I have to do this? And, um, you know, it was explained to me that it's not so much the vessel it's the body of water. So it's below head of tide, three miles out. So I had to learn how to sea kayak. I passed. So um, I remember, you know, uh, the day that I, I passed, you know, the day that I took the exam and um, I was just blown away. And um, uh, again, the office administrator, I, I said to her, so I do I have to wait like 30 days. Is there like a, you know, a probation period or something? She's like, no, I'm printing out your license. Now you could take out a group today if you wanted. And so, um, it was, it was pretty amazing. And then I launched my business story woman rowing, uh, in the second half of August and started taking people out. And I've been taking people out since that time. Um, you know, people that have never, never rowed, let alone be in a boat, you know, on the ocean uh, to people that have rowed, you know, used to row as kids, people that some people that have rowed in sliding seat shells, you know, people that have done some paddling. So it's really been a nice range of people, both women and men. I would say that it's been like, you know, probably 60, 40, uh, women and men. So I still have people amazingly it's February. I just brought out someone today and, you know, it's definitely quieter than it's been, but, um, but there are still people that want to go out for a lesson or a tour. I offer special rows sometimes like seasonal rows. I did a witch's row at Halloween. That was a hoot. And a solstice row. Uh, so I, I like to I like to play with my boat. My boat is my muse. So Dory Woman Rowing. Thank you, Nicole. And we think Dory Woman Rowing is a stroke of genius. Well, thank you. Thank you very much for having me on the show, Alan. And um, you know, I I've been having a great time with my business and grateful for the support that I've, I've gotten. And I think Belfast is a great place for it. 
and uh, you know, I hope to do a lot more rowing this, this season. That's Nicole Luttrell, DoryWomanRowing.com. Thank you, Nicole. Next, we talked with Charles Lagerbaum for the second time. We talked with him in the July 2020 Boat Talk about Hoyling and Maine. Now we go south with Charles to talk about his new book, Maine to Cape Horn. And we asked how many times he had made that trip. Yeah, uh, quite a few times, actually. I, I went down twice um, with the University of Maine, the uh, Quaternary Institute at the time. It's the Climate Change Institute now. But I went down as a field assistant while I was in grad school in the early 90s. Uh, we went out into the dry valleys and I got to see some of the historic huts and uh, things like that. So that was pretty much my introduction uh, to Antarctica. Uh, because I saw uh, and got to go into some of the huts um, of the polar explorers, I ended up coming back. And I'm a historian by training. I was just kind of a uh, living down the hallway from the glacial geologist uh, um, uh, guy who was organizing the uh, uh, the trip down. And I was just finishing up my master's thesis, so I didn't have any classes or anything. And he was looking for field assistants, people to go down and dig pits and haul rocks and cook at the camp and stuff like that. And I said, well, yeah, I could probably fit that into my schedule. And so I ended up going. So I came back all enthused about the history of the place. And I ended up writing a book uh, about uh, uh, one of the polar explorers. His name's uh, uh, Henry Bowers, who uh, died alongside Captain Scott um, on his way to the pole back in, back in 19, uh, uh, 1912. Uh, and that got me noticed uh, by like the polar community. And I ended up publishing a few more articles and stuff. So eventually I got asked to do some guest lecturing on Antarctic cruise ships down along the Antarctic Peninsula. That's quite a fantasy gig. Not only do they give you a ride there, I assume they're pretty nice to you. Uh, yeah. Give you a good place to shack up and, uh, you know, uh, maybe even uh, treat you after that. Uh, yeah, exactly. How could it, it get better? It, it's really nice. Um, you know, not only do they provide you with nice accommodations, uh, but you're also, you're considered both crew and passenger. So you get the perks of both, um, you know, and, uh, uh, you know, of course, some of these expedition ships are, are just little mini cruise liners, really, and um, with maybe 200 passengers, 300 passengers. And so it's it's very intimate, uh, top chefs and things like that. Um, you know, uh, they fly you down. They uh, set you up in hotel. We stayed at the Cabo de Hornas Hotel there in uh, uh uh, Punta Arenas, uh, because the ship was delayed a couple days to get to port. Um, and when they, they give you that gig, they usually, you know, say, well, you know, you have, you can bring somebody, you know, so I've taken my wife, I've taken my father-in-law, you know, a, a fellow teacher of mine, you know, sort of thing. And uh, I, my, my buddy, I took, he goes, uh, um, so tell me about this. He goes, what do I pay? I said, nothing. They'll fly us down. They'll meet us at the airport and take us to the ship. And uh, I said, well, you might have to pay, you know, your bar tab. He's like, well, that's a deal breaker then. I can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, Skip Strong 
Um, I don't know if you know him or not. He's a local harbor pilot here. Um, Skip Strong says that the cruise ships always have the best coffee. They do, you know, and, and, the, and being on the bridge, which, you know, not many of the passengers get to, to be up there, the, the, the cooks and the chefs, and the, the, they have the best pastries, they have the best co- uh, coffee, they, they do pretty well uh, by, the, by the crews up there. Um, and, and I really enjoyed that, seeing the, the interior of working of the ship as well, the, the, you know, watches that relieve each other and so forth. And, uh, you know, the, just the professionalism of it was, was pretty impressive. Charles, one of the things we like to say on Boat Talk, you can't fake experience. And that's a nice way to get some. It, it sure is. Um, you know, but in a way, it, it, it's kind of weird because I'm, I'm standing there like looking at Cape Horn, the actual Cape itself. And then I step inside and somebody hands me a drink or a bowl of soup and it's nice, you know, and I, way different from the accounts that I read of, mm. you know, uh, you know, climbing the rigging and, you know, while the, you know, the, the sleet and the hail is, is, is you know, hitting you or the winds, you know, uh, you know, blowing your cheeks out and stuff like that. It's just. It, 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 it's, it's tough to kind of make that, that jump occasionally. Um, you know, I, I, I try to put myself in those shoes, but not even close, not even close. And that's where I kind of fell into the history of South America and Cape Horn um, and uh, 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 places like that. So I'm a school teacher in my regular life uh, here in Maine. And I always thought, well, Maine's got some great connections with Cape Horn. And so that's kind of where I started to, you know, it all kind of came together at that point. One of the ground rules we have is that a lot of people who listen to boat talk really don't know that much about boats. They just like listening to old farts tell stories. So um, one, one term I think we should uh, clear up right now is doubling the horn. Would you explain that? Yeah, from what I was uh, able to gather, doubling the horn is where you cross 50 degrees south latitude on one side of South American continent, and then you recross it on the other side. So an either east-west passage or a west-to-east passage. Uh, But that is considered to be your time spent uh, rounding the horn or doubling the horn. So from 50 degrees to 50 degrees. that's where I, I, I came upon that term. Furthest point south, how many degrees, please? Um, it, uh, ooh, good question. That's uh, into the, uh, uh, I believe it's this, into the 60s. Cape Horn is 55.98 degrees south. By comparison, 56 degrees north runs through the Kamchika Peninsula, south of Alaska, through Canada, Scotland, south of Scandinavia, and then on through Russia. The country's 56 degrees south runs through is zero. You know, so it's a, it's, it's a pretty good um, route. And I know some of the, the clipper ships did it in, in uh, 10 days to two weeks which was phenomenal. Uh, anything within a month was pretty respectable. 
but we know like in 1914, uh, uh, Captain Quick, uh, Richard Quick of the uh, uh, Edward Sewell, he did it. Uh, it took him 67 days. I mean, because of the, the constant westerly. Right. The, the track of that in your book. Is, yeah. It's, it's, yeah. It, and it was amazing, uh, you know, as uh, I, I was I was following that and researching that. And, and so the book kind of talks a little bit about why that is such a difficult crossing or, or rounding to do anyway. And it's because of the open waters pretty much through that that whole 60th parallel. Um, there is no land. And so the winds just go in a, a counterclockwise uh, uh, or clockwise rotation around the planet, uh, around Antarctica, and then the Antarctic Peninsula and South America act as kind of like a little funnel through the Drake Passage. And that's why it's so treacherous down there. Not only a treacherous piece of water, uh, weather is uh, not good. Currents are very strong, not to mention fog. And uh, which rock are we looking at? It's often a good question when you want yeah. to be taking a bearing down there. Yeah. Um, extraordinarily difficult piece of water. That's if your vessel was hanging together well at the time. Um, you know, you didn't have storm damage from the vessel, um, didn't happen to be old and rotten and uh, asked one too many trips, uh, so many stories. As a historian, Charles, what a beautiful thing, never run out, correct? Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, um, the... The stories were just incredible. I mean, and I kind of fell into the Cape Horn stories um, with my research on the whaling book I did earlier. Uh, I'm, I'm researching, you know, all these whaling ships that go up into the Arctic and so forth. But when they started to round Cape Horn into the South Pacific, I started reading these accounts of, uh, of you know, uh, doubling Cape Horn. And I started thinking, wow, that's, that's a great story in and of itself. And so once the whaling book came out, that's where, you know, I kind of naturally progressed into researching and digging up uh, main connections with, with that place. Yeah. I, I don't know if I'd use great all the time for some of those stories. I, you know, I can't imagine watching your son get washed overboard and drifting away. It, yeah. It, yeah. Some... With the, the Suliot there, um, you know, during uh, Captain Simpson. Uh, when they rounded it, um, one of the first ships to leave for the gold rush, uh, actually, uh, uh, from the uh, from Maine, Belfast, Maine, actually. But yeah, hor horrible uh, uh, stories of, uh, uh, you know, just the the tragedies that were down there. Um, but uh, many of them, you know, you just stand in awe of, uh, you know, these people who did it is is part of the job or is part of. You know, that was just the necessary piece or leg of the voyage you had to get through. Uh, kind of like crossing the line, though, bragging rights big time and explain some of the jewelry that come with the brag. <laughs> yeah. The, um, great um, uh, painting of Harvey Mills, Captain Mills out of uh, 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 um, down in uh, southern Maine. Very. Uh, he was a Cape Horner uh, and he wore. A gold earring um, and that was to signify that he had rounded the horn and I thought wow that's that's pretty neat and then I found out more that it was uh, uh, you know to help pay for the the cost of burial should his body ever be found um, which 
in a small analogous way, I, when I went to the Antarctic with the uh, University of Maine, uh, we were issued dog tags. And I thought, wow, that is so neat with my name on it and everything. And then I started <laughs> thinking, wait a minute, I know what these are for. <laughs> this is identify me. Yeah. yeah, so not only could you get the, uh, the gold earring, uh, but you can put your feet up on the table, which I always thought was pretty interesting. Uh, you know, you can put one leg up if you rounded uh, Cape Horn and the other one if you did the Cape of Good Hope. <laughs> Maybe not if you brought your wife. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Well, and that's a whole side you know, yeah. story to all this as well. All the women who went down and, and rounded the, the horn as well. Well, the reason was that most of the women had gone to school and the men had, uh, most of the crew members hadn't gone to school. Yeah. And women had gone to school and learned math. And what, what do you think about the Chinese being down there at Terra del Fuego before Columbus got to the United, well, to the Caribbean? Right. Um, I believe it, it's possible. Um, I know, what is it? The uh, There was a map that um, either Columbus used or, or some others that they think may have been based, you know, uh, uh, from earlier visitations of somebody who had, who had seen the place. Um, I, I'm not, I wouldn't rule it out. I wish there was some, you know, sort of record to, to, because that would be, you know, a pretty eye-opening uh, uh, event, you know, for the Western world to kind of see as well, that they were, you know, they were that accomplished as sailors and fleets and stuff, um, you know, pretty much kind of like the, the Polynesians that were able to, you know, traverse the Pacific. I mean, uh, um, a lot of those stories definitely uh, um, are untold. Yeah, you, you could uh, say that they should have left some junk Oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> this may be a little bit off topic, but uh, I noticed, I couldn't help noticing in your book, all the strange boat names that had, I mean, there's some like Flying Cloud makes sense, but um, was it so Snow Squall or Speeding Squall or something like that? Yeah, Snow Squall. Yeah, she was the one that got salvaged from the Falkland Islands and brought back to Maine Maritime. Well, it actually originally started in South Portland, and then it went to Maine Maritime Museum. If I were a boat, I don't think I'd appreciate somebody naming me Snow Squall. <laughs> <laughs> you, I want something like Valiant or you know Charger or something. <laughs> When they did too, they you know the comets and the you know the the thundering this and the queen of the waves and they they ran the gamut of names. You're right. I think that's that's pretty interesting. Some it of the ones I found were the were the local ones uh, like the P.R. Hazelton, um, you know, named after a wealthy uh, Belfast guy that uh, uh, you know big uh, merchant. Yeah, and uh, it got great. Captain House there, but right behind the uh, the post office. Um, yeah, that that's a great story too. E. H. Harriman taking it down, and uh, uh, the storm forces him away from Cape Horn, and he tries to get in among the islands there, and ends up uh, wrecking the ship, and then tries for the next five to ten years to salvage uh, the cargo, and ends up going insane, and uh, uh, finally committed to the uh, asylum over in Augusta. I mean. Uh, uh, you know, just a 
a, a tragic story on just how much, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, Cape Horn weighs on you. Now, well, you did a, one of your articles was on Leach, wasn't it? Uh, yeah. Yeah. From the Herbert uh, Leach. Yeah. Herbert Leach. Um, from Castine from or actually Penobscot. Right. Right. And uh, uh, I got connected to him because of uh, uh, a colleague I worked with through the school district uh, was related to him. Um, I, I told him I was doing some research on the Jeanette expedition and everything uh, like that. And he said, you know, he mentioned uh, uh, Herbert Leach and he goes, you know, my my mother was a leech, you know, and so suddenly, you know, and so he was able to find, you know, where he was buried. And so we went out and, you know, one day and, uh, you know, I got to see the gravesite and stuff. So after having written so many books and articles, how do you feel about Maine to Cape Horn now that it's written? I liked it because it, it it's not a, a, a really thick, deep, you know, type of tome that, uh, uh, you know, is very dense. Uh, it's, it's more just kind of a, a, a nice storytelling sort of aspect to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I really enjoy just connecting the state with, you know, this point of land down at the Southern hemisphere, uh, you know, just uh, the ships that were built here or the crews that, that came out of here. Uh, you know, I was, elbow deep into like log books at the Penobscot Marine Museum, or I was, you know, traipsing through some cemeteries looking for a particular tombstone. I mean, that, that was what really kind of made it come to life for me. I, I loved touching upon all the little local historical societies that have all these, the, you know, these little, uh, uh, you know, tidbits and exhibits, you know, tucked away that they're justifiably proud of. I, uh, I loved, you know, kind of finding a new connection about it. And they would always be really excited, too. Uh, if I when as I visited, they would be like, oh, but did you also know about this? And that just kind of it's like every time I shook the tree, something something more new came out. Yeah. And I think there's probably still a little bit more to keep on shaking out, too. It's a interesting topic. It sure is. Charles, I want to thank you very much for this. Um, and the way you, you way you keep putting out books, I bet you we're going to be talking to you again sometime in the future. <laughs> do you do you have anything else underway? Uh, well, actually, I am working on um, the research vessel Hero. Um, it was one of the last wooden built uh, uh, wooden uh, ships built down at the Harvey Gamage um, shipyard in uh, South Bristol, nineteen sixty eight. Um, it went into service for the National Science Foundation. Uh, it was a wooden scientific platform, uh, and they wanted it made of wood to, to operate in the uh, uh, Antarctic Peninsula, in the shallow bays and harbors and stuff. And it worked as a science platform um, for about 15 years. About the mid-80s, it was put out of service with a new research ship coming in. It went up the West Coast and basically they had great plans for it to turn it into this or to that. And nothing ever really panned out. It sank at its mooring um, in 2017. And it is slated for demolition and scrapping probably sometime this spring. Ah. And so I've been doing a research, uh, researching the history of it, the people who served aboard it 
the science parties, and we're actually working together uh, on an effort to maybe bring some of the pieces of it back. Uh, maybe the propeller, maybe an anchor, maybe part of the mizzen mass, uh, things like that. Uh, uh, and, you know, uh, maybe have them go to a local museum since this is the state that the place that it was built. Now that w- we have pictures of that at the museum, don't we? Yeah. Because yeah. Red Boodle, Red Boodalea would have shot pictures of her under construction, wouldn't he? I, I, I believe so. Yeah, there's some great photos of uh, uh, Harvey Gamage standing in there among the timbers and everything. And right. uh, um, and then when they brought the mast in, uh, you know, just, yeah, there's some great photos. I, I have the photo collection of uh, the NSF official who was kind of in charge of it, Jack Crawl, who he was part of the um, the old Macmillan days with the, uh, the Bowden. Um, that's where he kind of got his start. And then he went into the National Science Foundation and was the Office uh, of Polar Programs. And he was put in charge of the construction of the hero. And he wanted Harvey Gamage to build it. And he wanted it made of wood, um, kind of like the Bowden, so that it would, you know, uh, uh, be way better in the ice. So he was very instrumental in that. Um, He's a great figure, uh, uh, good main connection as well uh, uh, with maritime history. So, yeah, there's a lot of good history about this ship. Uh, it's a sad fate where it's at currently right now. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's decks are awash, you know, at high tide and it's just busting up to nothing. And the mm-hmm. state of uh, Washington really wants it out of there. They have oyster beds nearby and the environmentalists are, are justifiably upset. So. The owner has basically left it, made it a derelict, although he lives right across the road from it. Uh, <laughs> he's a pretty interesting character. He has taken some of the pieces off it, like the ship's wheel and the ship plaque. Uh, and we're kind of discussing with him, maybe those items can maybe come for some sort of collection as well for exhibit or at least, you know, be curated. So, that's going to be its own little chapter of this this next book I'm working on is just the you know the recovery of it and bringing some of it back to Maine, kind of like the the snow squall uh, or the St. Mary that's uh, in the Maine State Museum. Just a quick reminder that we are in our winter fundraiser right now, and it's your support that keeps this station ship shape. But maintenance is constant, and becoming a sustaining member keeps WEIU on the right course. Just call 207-469-6600 or visit WERU.org for all the details. Thank you. Next, we go to another author, at least an author's representative, Lacane Smith tells us about book two of a three-part sailing series written in the voice of Chowder the Cat. The book is coming out this month. It's not quite out yet. It's uh, in production, and uh, it's due to be released on the 22nd of February, and it might be a couple of days after that where people can actually get it on different places like Amazon. It's called Far Away Islands of Paradise. It it starts in in uh, the Galapagos and uh, 
with her first long distance crossing going to uh, Easter Island and then continuing on through the South Pacific then um, jumping down to New Zealand and back up to uh, Vanuatu and Fiji and up to Micronesia and then uh, back through uh, the Solomon Sea and, and uh, down into Australia. So it ends in Australia. So it's, it's pretty much the whole Pacific run. Now, how did you like the Galapagos? Um, it, it was interesting. Uh, we actually didn't get to stay long because there was a new official port captain in there that uh, was going right by the book. And our Zarpe from Ecuador was not quite uh, correct. And uh, he said we couldn't stay there without getting fined. So hmm. we were able to go ashore and get some supplies and talk to a few people. And then the next morning we had to leave early before the they came out to check us and find us. So, but. Uh, and how about Easter Island? Oh, that's a, that's wonderful. We were there over a month and uh, that, that's an amazing place. Uh, now, is there a good harbor of refuge there? Not per se. Uh, there's a little gunk hole basin that um, um, anchoring out is kind of limited, depends on which side of the island you're on. And it's a little tricky when the weather's not right. But uh, there is one little uh, Hango Pico Cove there and near the western side that we got into, ended up rafting up with six other boats, and uh, which was a nice little place until something did occur later when a storm came up uh, and the distant uh, swells came rolling in and uh, created a problem. Now, where were the other six boats from? Oh, there was one Australian boat, another American, one French boat, a German boat. Yeah. Did, they, did any of them stay with you while you continued on, or did they just go their own way? Um. We left on our own at that time, but one did follow a similar route. The other two went off in a slightly different direction. Um, most of them we actually met up with again. There was only one exception was a single-hander that was there on a small boat that never knew what happened to him, although I heard rumors later that he was in Australia. Um, but yeah, I mean, you, you cross paths and then you reunite months or a year later or different places which makes it interesting it's an interesting group isn't it because you're all unto yourself kind of oh yeah yeah it's it's a great camaraderie too because everybody in the global cruising world um face a lot of similar things and, and um to deal with survival and storms and whatever and it, it, they're always know how to or concerned with helping each other because that's how in uh, remote places you can, you know, helps you survive certain conditions. How many uh, people do it? Is there a lot or? Well, it's hard to gauge. It would be interesting study. I mean, in, probably in the 1960s, there was a very small number. I mean, you go back to Joshua Slocum, if he was really the first and maybe a trickle, trickle of them the years after. But and this, once the 60s and 70s came around, it started to grow uh, when we did it in the 90s. I don't know. I think I was calculated maybe two, uh, 200 to 300 boats, counting everyone from different countries around the world. 
including it, even had one from Russia and a few from Japan. And a wide variety of boats, isn't it? Oh, yeah. 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 Um, you know, it was average size, probably, you know, it was a sailboat of maybe 40 foot, something like that, 35 to 40, 38, 40. But you'd see anything from 24 to 60, usually for the cruisers. That was then. I don't know what it is now, but. Right. Yeah. What percentage would you guess the, of uh, people who were cruising with children? Um, uh, maybe a sixth or a fifth. I mean, there was a fair number of uh, kid boats, we called them. <laughs> um, they were out and about, and they'd always tag up, get together, and do stuff. Um, yeah, maybe one out of five, <laughs> something like that. Pretty good. They would homeschool them and stuff. Oh, let's go back to you mentioned the first time that you built your boat. Um, hmm. who, who built it? Uh, Waterline Yachts in Sydney, Sydney, Vancouver Island. Yeah. And then uh, we they did the haul, and then we had it trucked over and. Took five, took five years to finish it out. Yeah. And insulators and painters we hired and I had an electrician friend and pretty much. And then, of course, the spars were built by a spar maker and the rest we all did ourselves with. Chowder kept an eye on it, too. <laughs> but uh, she was wondering what the heck's going on with this. And then she found out later. <laughs> how far south did you get um to new zealand that would be the furthest right going around you know cape of good hope in africa it was close to that but um we kept the boat in Wangaree in new zealand in the north island and um going down there was the coldest little weather we had and uh um, but when we got there, we just stayed on land and explored by explored the island on foot, bus, train. Yeah. How'd you like New Zealand? Oh, it's great. We were, we wanted to stay longer, but you know, such is life. A lot of, a lot of, um, expats ended up there and, um, the time, they, certain restrictions on being able to stay and getting jobs and things, but some people got around it and some people kind of snuck in and some went through the process and we could have maybe, if we really tried, could have gotten in, but we wanted to keep sailing. So we we moved on after spending the season there. But it's so a beautiful country. Yeah. Yeah. Is it like better than much. Australia? They always say if you land in New Zealand, you won't go on to Australia. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's different. Uh, I, I really enjoyed the Maori culture, and they, they're they quite accomplished. And uh, even though they have their own struggles, they have um, they do pretty well. I like their sensibilities and humor. Um, it's, it's a different type of, you know, I mean, I... I guess Australia had more convicts, British convicts going there than they did in New Zealand, but that's, I don't know all the details of that, but 
Australia is a little more of an outback, you know, crocodile Dundee sort of mm-hmm. flavor to it. And that has its own flair. Um, they're both they're, they're both unique in their own way, I think, and I enjoyed both of them. But if I had to choose, I'd probably go to New Zealand if I was going to, just because I really like the people and the, the, the way they think and the attitude. And, of course, they're all good sailors, as we know, winning cup races and things. So, Oh, yeah. And boat know. builders. Yeah. Yeah. There's some excellent boat builders there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Just what is the exact title of book number two? Well, I'm the author, Lacane Smith, and the book is the second in the series. It's called Faraway Islands of Paradise, and it it continues from the Galapagos all the way to Australia with um, Chowder telling all the adventures that happened. And uh, this is this is a step up from the first book uh, because he's now in foreign, foreign wide open seas of the South Pacific and, and uh, um, unique, different cultures where people live in different lifestyles. It, it'll be coming out and releasing on the fe- February 22nd. And soon after that, uh, people can get a copy from whatever location they want. But uh, this this one is more excitement than the first book. I mean, the first book is just going down the west coast of Americas, but uh-huh. I don't mean to put it down, but this has a lot more cultural, interesting things and adventures going on. Does, does Charter, Chowder go swimming in this one? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. She has her, her, her time. Yeah. It was not far from where that volcano went off in Tonga either. So I'm glad that we weren't there at that time. Yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> I've heard I've heard stories about underwater volcanoes and all the gas that comes out of them mm-hmm. uh, goes up and makes the water um, less buoyant. If you happen to be traveling over, it's like mm-hmm. trying to sail through foam, and they're mm-hmm. worried about boats actually sinking into it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, we did see uh, we did go over a, a bubbly subterranean uh, sub subterranean something rather once and then did have and this one we did experience um there was an earthquake somewhere nearby and we were at sea in between the islands of Vanuatu and it's the first time I've ever been in an earthquake while on a boat in the water and the rigging shook and chowder shook and I kind of vibrated and everything going whoa what was that and it turned out there was a tsunami warning so we didn't go into this harbor where they said you should have every boat in the harbor should leave. We were headed there, but um, most all all the people but one crazy guy stayed. I mean, they all left, but one guy. And uh, but having that happen out, you know, um, it's volcano active area. You yeah. know, the ring of fire that goes all around the Pacific right. is part of that. And um, just to have have a vibrating earthquake effect on a boat. And on the water was very unique, huh. unusual. Thank you very much. Yep, right. thank you. All right, Hi, John. you're welcome. Okay. Bye. It's about time to drop the hook on another Boat Talk, one of the many radio programs produced by your friends and neighbors, programming made possible by your support. Please keep this community radio station 
strong, and interesting, make a pledge by calling 207-469-6600 or go online to weru.org and click on the Donate Now. Thanks for your support. Since COVID precautions prevents the Boat Talk guys from being live on air and able to take phone calls, you can contact Boat Talk through the boattalk.org website. We're looking forward to hearing from you. Thanks again to our guests, Nicole Luttrell of DoryWomanRowing.com, Charles Lagerbaum, author of Maine to Cape Horn, and Lacane Smith and Chowder, authors of Faraway Islands of Paradise. Support your community radio. Ice will buy them sail, sir. Ice will buy the pets to fish and take some home to lie, sir.